like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And currently, I am taking a look at Dick's 1963 novel, The Game Players of Titan, uh, published in the right after The Man in the High Castle. It's a very, very different type of novel than The Man in the High Castle. That is much more about shifting realities, the world we live in, and it's a kind of a meta-analysis that's the culmination of, of a series of novels Dick wrote in the late 50s on that theme of, of what is real. Game Players of Titan seems to be a throwback to some of his earlier novels in which he would experiment with a type of, of system uh, that's very different from our own, kind of play with different dystopias. He did this a lot in, in the early in, or the mid-1950s. But this novel, in contrast to those and in contrast to The Man in the High Castle, is, is very intimate. I guess The Man in the High Castle is intimate too, but there's, there's very profound implications of it. This novel is much smaller. It's, it's essentially a murder mystery dealing with a small group of characters in California, you know, trying to to just live their lives in the world that they they're they're in, um, and the way this world is described is it's a, essentially it's it's a post apocalyptic world, but where the Earth has not been destroyed. Instead, what happened is humanity has been afflicted with a, a loss of fertility, and so children are very rare. In fact, the term luck, like I am lucky or I have luck means essentially I've had a child or I've gotten a woman pregnant. One way society's dealt with low fertility is constant marriage swapping. So um, the major kind of institution of the world described in the Game Players of Titan is the game. It's the game called Bluff. And most people of wealth play this game. Uh, they're called buying men and buying men are people who actually rule whole towns, whole cities. Sometimes these cities are essentially empty of people because it's such a small population spread around around the world and as they play this game you may lose your wife or your husband or you may gain one and you might trade or gamble away whole territories and properties and cities swapping it around so basically cities become the literal playthings of of the elite um, but much of the population, because it's so small, is part of this buying men class. There are people who don't own any property at all, because they usually because they lost it, or they never really were able to get into it. But it's it's kind of a flexible elite, just because the population is so small, and so much of the work that's being done is automated by machinery. There's something called the Rushmore effect here, which is essentially the AI, which means that a lot of the work can be done by machinery. Now back to pregnancy and family and, and as important is because the way the game works is if you if you roll three at certain points you get to get a new wife um, if other things happen to you you can lose a wife you can if you like if you you know you lose a game you might you know end up having to swap wives or or, or spouses the way the novel is presented it's more like wife swapping than, than spousal swapping because the, the focus of dick's attention is on men and it's men who play the game Usually women can be partners of the men. But nevertheless, the, the reason for this is because it allows people to basically 
try different couples to see who can get pregnant, who can have luck, right? We meet characters who have been married 10, 15 times and still haven't had any luck. Now, our main character in the novel is a man named Pete Garden, and he is just lost Berkeley to in, in the game, and he lost his wife. So he's a, kind of a bipolar person. He has a lot of ups and downs. He tends to celebrate enthusiastically, but he spends a lot of the novel also very depressed and drinking about, you know, just down on his luck. And he has lost a lot at the point that the novel opens. He still owns property. He's still a bindman. He has San Rafael. And I think, yeah, I think that's the main property city he still has. It doesn't have many people on it. There's one important person living on there named Pat McLean, who actually is a fairly uh, lucky woman. Who's She's a psychic. Of, um, she's got psychic abilities, as do many people in this world. But, and she's had several kids. That's what really makes her lucky. So that town actually has a bunch of kids. But uh, Pete Garden doesn't really appreciate that because he's lost Berkeley and he wants to get it back. He finds out that his property has been basically traded to a man named Jerome Luckman, or sometimes just called Lucky Luckman, who is, again, very lucky. He has a lot of kids, but he also wins at bluff. He wins at the game, and he's been expanding his territory. Because he has purchased Berkeley, he now can play bluff in California. And this is a real traumatic moment for the members of Pete Garden's bluff playing group. That group is called called Pretty Blue Fox, and they trade and swap and gamble for properties in California. With Luckman able to now participate in that, there's a risk that he'll be able to accumulate more and more territory in California and eventually push out a lot of the buying men of, of California. So they try to organize what to do about this. Pete Garden tries to get help from a man named Joe Schilling, who is not a bindman anymore. He lost New York City to Luckman years ago, but he thinks he has skill while Luckman just has luck. And he thinks if someone can back him with property, he can eventually beat Luckman at the game. So they're tr Joe Garden is trying to get Pete Garden, sorry, is trying to get Joe Schilling into the game. Joe remarries a woman named Carol. And basically, the first quarter of the novel ends with a discussion among the members of Pretty Blue Fox about how to stop Luckman from, from winning and to keep him out of California. Although they're not very optimistic that, they can, that he can be stopped. Now, one more important thing to say about this, this world is it's, it's, Earth is in a colonial relationship with the Titanians. They're called the Vugs. These are aliens from Titan, the moon of Saturn. And they, in the aftermath of this, of this conflict that led to um, the end of you know, fertility on Earth, the Vugs have essentially entered into a benevolent dictatorship over the people of Earth. So they have a lot of power and kind of legal authority, and they've brought the game uh, and get the, the obsession with gambling to the people of Earth. They actually impose a lot of the rules that the people of on Earth follow as they play the game. They've also brought some technologies and things. So that it's, it's presented as kind of a benevolent rulership, but perhaps there's a more insidious nature to the rule under the surface, as we might expect from a, in a Phil Dick novel. Oh, also, there are many people on this planet who are called Jerry's, and this is a thing Dick will use a lot in his 1960s novels. The Jerry's are simply people who, through some kind of life-extending technology, are over 100 years old. 
They're sometimes reaching 150, 200 years old. And there's a fair number of Jerry's. You can't really tell by looking at them because of their, you know, they, I think here it's a, it's a manipulation of a gland that allows people to live for a long time. In other novels, it'll be, you know, surgery that will let people live for a very long time. In, in one of his, what I think, underappreciated novels, The Crack in Space, it's, it's really about the relationship between the Jerry's and the younger people. That's not as much an issue here uh, because there's not that many children. Children are very rare, and basically the population is still around at all. The reason humanity hasn't died out entirely by this point is because of, of Jerry's. But that is a, a subtext of, of the novel as well, people extending their lives. And they spend their life not doing that much. They play the game, they gamble, they, they play bluff, they... You know, most of the work is being done by AI and, and machinery. So it's it's kind of a post-scarcity world with life extending technology, but not many young people. So it gives it a bit of a feeling of stagnation, I believe. But into this context, we're given a very tight murder mystery. And that's kind of how we enter what's the, the, how the story takes off starting in Chapter 6, which is what I'll start looking at today. So I looked at the first five chapters of the Game Players of Titan in the previous episode. So I urge you to go back and and look at that. But in chapter six, we meet Joe Schilling, who is not a bindman. He wants to get in the game, but he needs someone to back him with some property. And he thinks he can beat um, Luckman. But as it opens up, as chapter six opens, he's fighting with this car. And the, what he's fighting about is that he wants to go to the coast from where he was living and he basically wants to go to the coast of California in order to participate in the games and to stop Luckman. He's learned that the pretty blue fox group has lost already to Luckman and now Luckman has two California properties which puts the California group in a bind because before when he just had Berkeley there was a chance they could beat him in a game and then he'd have to surrender Berkeley. But now that he has two California properties he can choose not to put a Berkeley so he's quite frustrated about that. Um, and he's fighting with his car. Uh, this common thing that Dick likes to play with, especially in some of these 1960s works where people are having disagreements and debates with artificial intelligences. Now, one use of the one thing we get in the early in this chapter is Joe thinking about the economics of marriage. And that's something we that what's happened in this world is, yeah, there's one reason for this marriage swapping that's constantly going on through the mechanism of the game is that they're trying to maximize the number of, of pairings over a course of a lifetime in order to ensure that the, the, the largest number of children uh, could be had without necessarily giving up the, the institution of marriage altogether. So these people, all these people are, are serial monogamous, serial, serial monogamists having a lot, but they have a lot of wives, 10, 15, or more. Joe Silling reflects on this, and he sees marriage becoming just a commercial exchange, a commercial relationship, because it gets spouses get swapped in the context of the game. They kind of get gambled away. In fact, I, I think the focus on the economics of marriage here is suggestive of something Dick, another turn in Dick's career in the 1960s, which is to kind of move from talking about governments and government bureaucrats to corporate bureaucrats and corporate agencies. So novels like Ubik, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, 
the game players of Titan to a degree, we're dealing with kind of capitalists or, or even like middle management type capitalists rather than kind of government agents. Now, there's still some government char characters from government, but not as common as they were in his 1950s novels, where it's much more focused on kind of the political aspect of things. And here's what Schilling thinks about the economics of marriage. Wives, more of a problem than an asset. The economic aspects of our lives should never be hopelessly melded with the sexual. It makes things too complex. Blame it on the Titanians and their desire to solve our difficulties with one neat solution covering all. What they've actually done is gotten us entangled even more thoroughly. But marriage has always been a primarily an economic entity, Schilling reflected as he steered his auto-auto up into the early morning New Mexico sky. The Vogs haven't invented that. They had merely intensified an already existing condition. Marriage had to do with the transmission of property lines, of lines of inheritance, and of cooperation and career lines as well. All this emerged explicitly in the game and dominated conditions. The game merely op dealt openly with what had been there implicitly before. End quote. So it is, you know, it's it's a view of marriage. And, you know, I, I don't know if Dick shared it, but, you know, it's something, it puts some context in his view of the family and the marriage, which has been problematic since the beginning of his career, to say the least. Now, at the same time, we shift to, so now he's got Schilling's on his way to, to San Rafael to, to see Peter Garden and to help him with the game. At the same time that, th that this talk was going on or that Joe's thinking about this stuff in the car, Peter's thinking about his own marriage so we have two characters thinking about marriage at the same time. Here's what, but he just remarried Carol, and he, he spent his first night with her. Quote, he liked Carol. She was pretty, and to say the least, great guns in bed. It was simple as that. She was not terribly pretty, and many of his wives had been as good in bed and better, and he did not like her inordinately. Everything about his feelings was commensurate with reality. Her feelings, however, were excessive. To Carol, this new marriage challenged her sense of identity by way of her prestige. As a woman, a wife, as a game player, that was a lot. End quote. So while Joe Schilling's looking at marriage more institutionally and economically, um, Pete still has this kind of attempt. He's trying to create this emotional relationship, and he, he understands this in a more intimate term, sexually, in terms of feelings and emotions. And he's trying to empathize with her own feelings and emotions, and I think that that shows a kind of difference between these two characters. Um, Joe's much more emotional. He's got these ups and downs. Not, not, not Joe, I mean Pete. I keep confusing these characters. Pete has these ups and downs emotionally. Joe is, is much more cynical, and he has been since we first met him. So while he's out, he sees the McLean's children, and of course that makes him think more about his marriage as well, because Pat McLean, one of the few people in his in the city of San Rafael, Rafael and, and very prolific, lucky in terms of the number of children they have, now, meanwhile, Joe arrives in San Rafael and goes to Pete Garden's house and talks with Carol. Peter's gone, and they end up having a talk. At the same time, Patricia and Pete end up talking. So Pat, McLean, and Pete talk. So he approaches her, and they talk a little bit about the Heinz gland operation, which allows people to extend their lives. They talk about suicide, and she reflects, or Pat's a psychic, so she's able to see Pete's suicidal thoughts and, you know, Pete's on medication to try to avoid those thoughts. And they talk a lot about psychic ability as well. And she agrees to to have lunch with him. 
but also picks up these violent thoughts in her head, especially regards to Luckman, you know, that basically he wants to see Luckman dead. It's, it's important for the for later on, because this is going to be a murder mystery about the death of, of Luckman. So what's actually said here matters. She says she says it's a violent act and has to do with death. Death, he echoed. Perhaps, Patricia said, you'll attempt suicide. I don't know. It's in Coate still. It has to do with death and with Jerome Luckman. So it's not clear. It's not that he's thinking about killing Luckman. It's he's thinking about death and he's thinking about death in respect to his anxieties about Luckman. Now, in addition, in addition to being a psychic, Pat provides something else to Pete Garden, and that's someone who's outside of the game, someone who's outside of that circle, and someone who's had a lot of children and a lot of luck in family. So she is a, and she, he's, she's very attractive, and he's very attracted to her. So in a way, she, she presents something that's attractive to him, above and beyond the, 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 the ability she has as a psychic, but it's a lifestyle that Pete can't get into or, or to get into would mean abandoning so much of his old life. And you might already start to think at this point that part of the solution of Pete Gardner's character should be to leave the game or to leave Bluff. And we'll see if that's how it turns out. So later on that night, so they agree to have lunch that day, but the next scene we have is that night and he awakens and has lost six hours of time. He actually, then he, ta- he interrogates his car and he says, well, fill in the details of what happened. And he, so he talks to the Rushmore effect of his car, the AI of his car, and he does, basically the car can report on where he went and what he, what he did and kind of what places he stopped at. So we know the car reports that he went to the Claremont Hotel, which is where Luckman is staying. He also went to the San Francisco State College, apparently to see Pat McLean's daughter who studies there. And he calls Carol, and Carol reports that he was in the car with Joe Schilling talking for a while. So it was a lot, lot went on in these six hours that he apparently has lost. And that, that's chapter six. Chapter seven. In chapter seven, Pete goes back to his home in San Rafael and sees Carol, or sees Joe, actually. Joe's at his, at his house, and Carol's not there at the time. So Pete's very confused about this, and Joe reports on Luckman's disappearance, and Pete's totally um, surprised by this, and Joe is surprised he's surprised because it was actually Pete who mentioned Luckman's disappearance to him previously. They end up having a very rushed dinner, and then they get a call from Bill Calamine. Calamine is the head of the pretty blue fox group of california bluff players and they basically say you have to come in right away and we have something to talk about and so they prepare to go but then carol shows up they actually see carol in the hall as they leave the house and carol has the news that she found luckman's body in the back of her car and she says she's already called the police and the police are on their way so from this point on the novel becomes increasingly a murder mystery a kind of whodunit in respect to to Luckman. And that's actually the end of chapter seven. It's it's short. It's only four pages or so. So in chapter eight, the Pretty Blue Fox meet, group is meeting. And the meeting is run by Bill Calamine, who's the 
basically their, their elected head. And they're discussing the murder of, of Luckman. And basically, we had a situation where everyone is a suspect, right? Everyone in the group had a motive to, to kill Luckman because everyone wanted to see him gone. And everyone was anxious about Luckman's arrival to, to California with property. Feelings, though, are, are mixed. Some people are just glad he's dead. And some people are bothered that this is going to bring, of course, the police and, and they could all end up in jail over this. Or, or the group could even be disbanded because that's in the law. So they call their lawyer. It's actually Bill Calamite's lawyer, a man named Barth. I think his name's Bob Barth or something. He's kind of a forgettable character. Bert Barth. There's, there's a lot of um, characters in this novel to keep track of. So he calls Bert Barth, the lawyer, and Bert Barth shows up eventually to, to provide his legal advice. And, and we learn a little bit about the police procedures here. It seems that investigations by the police involve usually a VUG detective and then a human detective and the human detective is there to kind of make sure that it's fair. So we got a quote on this. This is actually um, Bill Bart, Berth Bart explaining this process to the group. Quote, they'll come as a team. One VUG, one Terran. That's customary on capital crimes. I'll get up there as soon as I can, but it'll take me at least half an hour. Be prepared for both of them to be excellent telepaths. That's customary too. But remember, evidence obtained through tele telepathic scanning is not legal in the Terran court of law. That's been solidly established. The police telepaths can scan you and determine if you're guilty or innocent, but other evidence has to be provided, produced for it to stand up in court. They'll use their telepathic faculties to the hilt, however, and you can be sure of that. Um, so the way this works is it's kind of like a lie detector, right? Test. It's not admissible in court, so they still have to have outside evidence to actually charge someone with a, with a murder, but it will be used in the investigation. Um, so here, telepathic powers, abilities can be used. So they're going to be scanned. That's, that's um, what they're facing. So we got telepathic evidence. We have a VUG telepath, telepath and a human telepath. And the biggest threat outside of some of them maybe getting thrown in jail if they're caught doing it is the disbanding of the group because this is a, a rules violation, obviously, um, not just a criminal act. What's a rules violation to disrupt the group um, but through murder? or to manipulate the game through murder. So we have um, the Vogue investigator who, who takes on a, I don't know if this is his real name, but or if it's his kind of human name, but it's E.B. Black. So I'm guessing this is the name he takes as, as a human. And then we have Wade Hawthorne, and these are, they're both telepaths. They're both, um, they're, these are the main investigators, the human Wade Hawthorne and the Vogue E.B. Black. And they immediately scan Carol. Of course, Carol was the one who called in the, the, the crime initially, the, the, the finding of the body, and it's revealed through an easy scan that Carol is innocent, and which is sort of what they thought. Now, Pete is scanned too, and he really hesitates because he knows he's lost time, and he's, he doesn't know if I, if I refuse. It's kind of like taking the fifth, right? You have a right to do that, but at the same time, it kind of makes you a suspect. People are going to less likely to trust you if you feel you can't stand up and, and give your, your side of things. At the same time, though, he realizes that if they scan him and they find lost time, that's also going to increase his, his culpability in the eyes of the police. Eventually, though, he does decide, I have nothing to lose, so he allows himself to be scanned, and the telepaths find that he has lost time. And Hawthorne immediately makes the connection that 
Pete was worried about. Quote, anyone intending to commit a capital crime would, of course, know that telepaths would be brought in. He would have to deal with it, and nothing could possibly benefit him more than a segment of amnesia entering to block out that period of activities. I presume we take Mr. Garden into custody. And the Vug says, of course, we'll, we'll do that. But then he goes in. The Vug wants to scan everyone else, too. And he finds that six people altogether have had amnesia, some, some degree of amnesia. So they're Clem Gaines, who, so he's Mr. Gaines, Clem Gaines. He's Freya's husband. Freya was Joe, sorry, Pete's um, ex-wife, the wife he just lost before the novel began. So she's already remarried. So um, Mr. Gaines, uh, a married couple, Sylvanus Angst and another Mrs. Angst. I, I don't know if we get her first name, but um, Mrs. Calamite. So Bill Calamine's wife. Pete Garden, of course, and then uh, another player, Janice Remington. So these six people are identified as the, the prime suspects. So after a, a little bit of a, uh, like a, a line break, new, like a new scene, uh, the group is talking pretty frankly with Hawthorne and the police. They ask how he was killed, and they find that Luckman was killed by a thing called a heat needle, which was like an old kind of military sidearm <coughs> that um, is very accurate from a distance. It uses a laser beam. They talk about the complexity of the law, what the law will mean for the bluff group, what the law might mean for the individuals, and a little bit on the psychic abilities, what charges can be brought against them. So we get a lot of the legal conversation here. Um, and now the suspects, the six suspects are not thrown in jail immediately, but they are traced. And the technology that we have here that allows them to be traced is a thing called the Tattletale, which essentially is a tracking device that, that doesn't have telepathic psychic abilities, despite Hawthorne's wish that it did. Um, but it's um, something that can track these people. So essentially they're in some kind of government surveillance, even though they're not put in jail. Now, at the time, though, they, they don't like this lawyer. They thought the lawyer, Bert Barth, kind of gave too much up and just wasn't very effective. So the overthrow Bill as leader for making this really bad decision of choosing his lawyer to be, represent the group. And Joe calls his lawyer named Laird Sharp. And he impresses the group when they call him right away. And he immediately is able to stand up for the group and, you know, give some good legal advice. So they decide to hire him. Now, at the end of the chapter, this is chapter eight, Bill Calamite rats on Peter Garden. Um, now, he has good reason to do so. His wife is a suspect. But he, he the way, what he says is basically Pete expressed his intention to me to murder Luckman at an earlier moment. Now, this it appears to be a false memory. So in addition to having six amnesia cases, we have one case of a false memory. Now, the reason we know that this is a false memory is because of Joe Schilling's testimony.
Bill says, if you had just scanned me deeper, you would have seen it. But Hawthorne is, is skeptical, too. And he says, like, I scanned you and he wasn't here. So this is like a new memory you have in, in your mind. And the Vug agrees that this is a, a new memory. And these are powerful telepaths. So it's a bit s suspicious that they would have missed this important datum. And then later on, we learn that, you know, right, right away in the next chapter, chapter nine, Joe Schilling says, I don't think you killed Lockbin. Right. And I don't even think he called Bill Calamite. Right. I, I know what you were doing. And then he confirms if the thought wasn't there originally in his head when the police scanned him, how did he get added later on? So we definitely have some kind of psychic manipulation going on, both in the amnesia cases, all six, you know, amnesia cases, and then Bill's memories being corrupted. Most of chapter nine, though, is essentially the meeting with Joe and Pete with sharp this new lawyer and a couple of weird things happen here first sharp can is convinced that barth is a good lawyer and what for whatever reason their impression that he was a bad lawyer is misguided so that he was actually surprised that they overthrew bill for choosing bert barth as, as a lawyer because he does think he's a, an effective counselor so Sharp's advice is to call in Pat McLean as to be kind of an outside psychic witness, someone who could maybe read his mind, confirm some things. And also, since they had met, he she could be a witness to what he was doing during the day that, that Luckman died, at least some of the day. And maybe there's things he um, Garden said to her or whatever. So the, the advice is to bring in this woman, Pat McLean, to be essentially a witness for the defense, or at least at this point to be questioned by this defense attorney. He actually pulls up, um, actually, McLean's already in the police file. Her name is. He says, I had to pull a few strings, but here it is. He got, basically, he got discovery evidence. I've already glanced at this. This E.B. Black found in your memory an encounter with a woman named Patricia McLean who told you that you were about to perform an act of violence having to do with Luckman's death. So Sharp wants to get the second opinion or the opinion straight from her about what is going on here now what sharp is convinced of and it's pretty obvious there's some kind of massive conspiracy going on the manipulation of so many minds now there's a couple ways one is the murderer may have done this to kind of muddy the waters and to make it more difficult to find find the murderer or to find any to for the police to investigate it at all another possibility of course, is it is a formal conspiracy in which the six murderers got together and agreed to all have their minds wiped, right? So that's kind of the core detective idea. The, the idea in the sense is a detective story murder mystery. That's the kind of the cool idea here is that all the people who were the suspects or who did it could have their minds wiped for that day, have those memories destroyed. And that, would, you know, what would that mean for the police investigation? And what would it, you know, no one would, you, someone could do the murder and not know they did it not have any memory and therefore not be able not not be able to give themselves away in a police investigation or a questioning and it just would be that much more difficult to find any evidence especially if you broke up the deed among many people you know so those are basically the theories that sharp has so pat eventually comes and she can actually provide some useful information for one she says when we met in the early afternoon for the lunch he didn't have any memory of of Luckman being dead. So he didn't know Luckman was dead during that lunch meeting. In fact, in, but he was terribly afraid, she says. He felt that Luckman would beat Joe again as he did years ago. Pete was going into a psychological fugue. 
a retreat from the whole situation regarding Luckman. But he didn't have plans to kill Luckman, she reports. Sharp wants Pat McLean scanned for, for evidence or whatever or to get this stuff to the police to help protect his client. And she refuses to be scanned. And then the question comes up, did, did Pete and Pat McLean have an affair? And she denies that they had an affair. And it seems they, they didn't. That's not the reason. She doesn't want to be scanned. And then she just says, it's not going to help anyways, because if Luckman was killed around dinner time, I met Pete prior to that. I can testify he didn't have murderous thoughts at the time, but it's not going to get him off the hook for a murder that probably took place hours later. So that's really all she can offer um, to help. So um, they have a little bit more. The, the meeting goes on for a while. Um and eventually Pete goes home and has his first kind of serious sit down with Carol since since the whole Luckman situation broke out. And instead of talking about the, the case so much, they, they actually talk about their relationship. And again, we get more evidence that Pete very much wants to make this relationship work, seems to care about her to a degree and, and wants to take this marriage seriously. And so I think that's it's it's in a way you you come at this novel and you think with all these swapping of marriages that these are really superficial shallow marriages and it's just about sex and reproduction and economics you know husbands and wives being bought and sold and traded um you know and this is the criticism we can have of serial monogamy right that every relationship is just a throwaway one right the people who marry for life are the true romantics the true ones that love their partners and i think dick doesn't agree. Dick here is making a case that even the short-term relationship can be very meaningful and heartfelt by the people involved in it. It's actually the outs the people the man who's not married, Joe Schilling. I think he was married before though, but the the single guy now who has the most cynical view of marriage, the one who's in it has a more authentic view. And they talk about maybe we'll get lucky, maybe we'll have a kid. And Carol doubts that anyways, the rabbit paper, which is what they bite to as a pregnancy test, only works after a few weeks anyways, or after a few days. So they just, I guess, had sex the previous day. So it wouldn't happen. But he says, well, the new rabbit paper from Europe or whatever can do this. So he goes out to buy this rabbit paper and she bites into it. And it turns out she is, she is pregnant. Now, this actually makes the case more important because there's advantages to having kids. And this is what Carol says. Pete, do you realize what this means in terms of the game? Every deed in the pot belongs to us automatically, but there is no game right now. There aren't any deeds in the pot because the police ban. We must get something. We have to look it up in the manual. So by being pregnant at this moment, when the group shut down, they actually lost out. And that's how important pregnancy is in this society that, you know, the pot in which people put the properties into the game and then gamble it you know when they play the game you know that whole pot goes to someone when they're when they have a kid so that's that's like the prize you get for having a kid but they're losing out on that so that is something that's that's quite devastating for them personally um, but also it's very convenient it seems so is there something with that i don't know or we don't know yet we're only halfway through the novel so that that finishes chapter nine and that finishes up the second part the second quarter of the game players of titan so i will um stop at this point and i will 
be back with part three of my comments and my review and my thoughts on the game, game players of Titan, and we'll see how this case, this murder mystery, progresses in the in the following chapters. So as always, thanks so much for listening and for supporting this podcast, and I'll be back shortly with my with the next part of the game players of Titan. You will find peace and contentment forever if you